Um, as Pastor Justin mentioned, uh, we are taking one more break from the Psalms. We'll be in Psalms 38 next Sunday. And obviously, me preaching this Sunday was another unexpected thing. Um, because as he shared, uh, Rick Eskimian went home to be with the Lord this week. And that's just like, you know, for those of you hearing it for the first time today who know Rick, um, that's really hard news, and it's hard to process. And so um, in my preparing and planning for this week's sermon, um, I just went to a passage of Scripture that's been on my heart and on my mind for actually the past two months or so. Well, maybe like four or five months, actually. Um, It's Hebrews 11. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, which I say that all the time when I'm preaching. Um, It's often called the Hall of Faith because it's this laundry list of all these saints who live these lives of amazing faith. And um, we're not going to read the entire thing. We're not going to actually get into depth on each character because I don't want to teach on the whole passage. I only want to teach on a a, a small section, verses 1 through 16. And um, we're not even going to spend a ton of time on looking at the characters in our passage of Scripture this morning because I don't think it is the most important thing for us this morning. I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he wants to direct our, the majority of our time and attention on the central theme of Hebrews and the central theme of this chapter, which is the faith that we have in God as far as him keeping his promises. So faith in God, the God who keeps his promises. Now, I mentioned that I, I've had this passage on my heart for a while, and that's because, first of all, in May, back in May, when Sarah Mount a member of our church went home to be with the Lord. Um, Hebrews 11 came to my heart and really comforted me. It ministered to me because it, it I mean, the tension of someone like Sarah, uh, I guess the uh, trying to process both the sadness of losing Sarah, losing her embrace, missing her kisses, um, just how sweet she was, worshiping with her was really hard, but holding in tension both the joy of knowing that Sarah ran her race well was just a faithful woman of God. And Hebrews 11 brought me comfort because it just, it reminded me again of the race of faith that we run and how Sarah ran it well. And then a few weeks back, my own father was uh, hospitalized because he had sepsis. He had a serious infection, was in the hospital for nine days, and Hebrews 11 came to my mind because there was a lot of uncertainty. I was just fearful, my family was fearful, and by God's grace, after nine days in the hospital, the Lord delivered him. He's now on the mend. He's out of the hospital. And I'm praising the Lord for that reality. But I was thinking about the promises of God and the promises of Christ and the faithfulness of God throughout that season. And then fast forward or rewind from today, Rick's going home to be with the Lord. That was just like another just hit. And I just felt like the Lord again reminded me of Hebrews 11. Oh man, the faith of God and the faithfulness of God's servants. And as devastating as it is, as hard as it is knowing who Rick is, just a faithful dad, father, um, husband, uh, member of this church that just love the Lord, my comfort was coming in the fact that I know that Rick loved the Lord, that Rick served the Lord. He did it through serving his family. He did it through serving this church. And I'm praising God for that. And through all the sadness, the frustration, the pain, the uncertainty of all these events, God has used Hebrew 11 to build up my faith in trusting in him. And I think 
that that is what the Lord wants me to share today. So I'm sharing it. Hebrews 11. And here's what I glean from this passage. We glean things about God's promises now in this life to the believer. The promises that God has made us today in the life of the believer. And number two, God's promises to us then in death. God's promises to us now in life and God's promises to us then in death. Now our text this morning is divided into two sections. Number one is the beginning of faith, Hebrews 11 chapters 1 through 12. And number two is the end of faith, Hebrews 11 verses 13 through 16. Now I want to begin uh, this passage or this study by providing some context to the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is a pretty dense book. If you've read through the book of Hebrews, oh man, it is amazing book in the Bible, I would encourage all of you to sit down, put in the 30, 45 minutes, read through the whole chunk of scripture, and you will be blessed by it. It's a dense book. And the central theme running through it, to know it, is to help understand what the book is all about. So let me give you some context. Now, the background of the book of of Hebrews is the author is, is unknown. We don't know who the author is. Some speculate it's Paul or Silas. We're not sure, and we're not gonna spend our time speculating on that. So for the purpose of today's sermon, we're going to be referring to the author as the author, okay? He is the author. The intended audience is given to us in the name of the letter. That is the name of Hebrews, which the earliest manuscripts translate the book of Hebrews as to the Hebrews. So it's pretty straightforward. We know that this is a book in the Bible addressed to the Hebrew people. Now the term Hebrew is meant to describe a Jew or an Israelite. Just like the term Gentile in the Bible is used to describe a non-Jew, someone of a different nationality. Now, from what we can gather, these Hebrews that this book, the author is actually addressing this letter to, were most likely believers in Christ. But they were lacking some spiritual death. And the author alludes to this in chapter 5 when he writes verses 12 and 13. He says this about the audience or the recipients of this letter. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child of God. How hard would it be to to contribute to your small group after you got a letter like that from your pastor? That'd be a little difficult and discouraging. Yet, it is a letter written and words written in love. Now, there is a possibility that this letter was written to a group of non-believing Jews, these people who do not believe in Jesus, which would explain why the majority of this letter is spent teaching that Jesus is both the sacrificial lamb and our eternal mediator or high priest. So these Jews would not have been convinced, if they're non-believing Jews, convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, which is the Son of God, the Messiah, nor would they have been convinced that Jesus did what he said he did which is die on the cross to take away the sins of the world. For a non-believing Jew, faith in Jesus could not save you. Faith was commendable, but it was not sufficient for salvation. And And this was the position of the readers. They'd have huge problems with this letter. Now, regardless of the audience, the author is going to walk the reader through the gospel, and he's going to carefully explain how salvation is found in Christ, both to remind immature believers, and to teach both those Jews who do not even know who Christ is or believe in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, as far as the time period is concerned, we can't be sure exactly when this letter was written. Um, 
given it's the content of the letter, it's believed to be written back in AD 70 before the temple was actually destroyed. The reason for this speculation is because the author writes about the temple as if it's still being practiced, temple worship that is. It's believed to be written back in AD 70, which would, before, after Christ's death, this is 70 years past that. So this letter was probably written in between these two events, both the death of Christ and the destruction of the temple. And if this is true, then this would help explain why the author is focused on explaining to these young Jewish believers or non-believers that Christ's life and that Christ's death has removed any need for old temple worship and the old sacrificial system. Christ coming into the scene, living the life he lived, dying the death he died, would remove the old covenant and usher in the new covenant. Now again, it would be very hard for a Hebrew person to believe this 2,000 years ago. Because at, this, at the time, this would be, you know, they believed that God, they could earn favor with God through doing good works, through obedience to the law of Moses. This is how you earn favor with God. Obeying the law of Moses would require perfect moral obedience. So it'd be them obeying the Ten Commandments to the T. It would be perfect ceremonial purity. There were laws about diet, hygiene, religious observ observances. And it would be obeying the law in perfect civil obedience. This is just being a law-abiding citizen. And if you want to know more about what those three categories are in the law of Moses, we have a series through Exodus you can get online that actually breaks those down, which would be helpful and I think would be a good thing to learn. But here's the thing with this. It doesn't matter what you do. All the law is telling us is that we have to, we're required to be perfect. And if you broke the law, there were consequences. The more serious the offense, the more serious the consequence. Regardless of the severity of the offense, all of offenses are sin against a perfect and holy God. And the penalty for sinning against a holy God is death, Romans 6, 23 tells us. Now, this made the law of God crushing to all who recognized their inability to, to not measure up, to not live out God's law perfectly. Now, the law of God, as we know of God's people, is good, right? The law of God is holy. God's law is life-giving. But the problem with the law is us. We're the problem with the law. We can't keep it. So what God did is he provided temporary means for us to have our sins to be covered. And that was through a sacrificial system. Now the sacrificial system was where they would take bulls or goats without blemish, animals that were considered innocent, and they would be slaughtered and killed to atone for sins. This is called substitutionary atonement. Now instead of the sinner paying for sins, God allowed his people to substitute an innocent animal in their place, and the animal paid the price for sins with its life. And through this, throughout the Old Testament, God's people would daily, monthly, annually sacrifice these animals without blemish so that they might be seen without blemish before their holy God. This was the sacrificial system set up before Jesus came onto the scene. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has been attempting to persuade the audience that in Christ, we are under a new covenant, meaning we are no longer under the law of Moses. We are united through faith to the one who has fulfilled the law perfectly. God sent his son Jesus to fulfill the law, to live a perfect life, a righteous life, so that we might rest from our works. 
Hebrews 4.10 says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. To enter God's rest is to enter into a saving relationship with Christ through faith. The author goes on to say in Hebrews that Jesus then became the ultimate and once and for all sacrifice to pay for our sins. Hebrews 9 verses 12 through 14. He, speaking of Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the new covenant. Salvation as a gift received only by faith. Salvation as a gift received only by faith, not a result of works or sacrifice or obedience to the law, but by the blood of the perfect lamb of God. Listen, Obedience apart from faith won't get you any closer to God than jumping off the earth gets you any closer to the sun. Salvation is not won or earned by works. It is received by grace through faith. We must receive grace through faith. There's only one true way to please God and that is through faith in Christ, our great high priest. Hebrews eleven six tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, there is no receiving of grace, forgiveness, or heavenly citizenship. The Apostle Paul spells this out perfectly in Ephesians 2 8. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The author of Hebrews is trying to remove any residual idea of works based religion. And reiterate that simple truth that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you may be saved. This is the gospel. This is the healing balm to our souls. This is what we need to hear. Because I don't know about you, but I oftentimes try to work harder to earn favor for God. But when I'm reminded of the sweetness of the gospel, I can rest from those works, knowing that Christ has done those things for me. Now, Hebrews 11 is a text focused on the through faith part of this statement. If salvation is through faith in Christ, then we better know what faith is. And we better know who it is that must be the object of our faith. And in these 16 verses, we get the answer to these questions and more. Now, let's begin with the first half of our selected scripture, which is titled, The Beginning of Faith. The Beginning of Faith. Now, the author begins by defining faith, which is helpful. He says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now what, what he's giving us here are basically two parts of the same definition, both communicating the same thing, but said a little bit differently. Number one, he says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Number two, he says faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now I've heard this passage plenty of times growing up in the church. And I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, I feel like I understand it, but it's still a little hard to explain, right? 
I, there have been so many times where someone's like read this passage and been like, oh yes, that's faith. And then it's like, okay, explain what you just heard. You're like, just read the passage, okay? That's exactly what I'm hearing. It's a little challenging to understand, but I want to try to simplify it for you this morning, and I think this might be helpful. The first definition, faith, is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The author is saying faith is the sure confidence that we have that God will keep his promises. It's the sure confidence that we have that God will keep his promises. So the, faith, the life of faith is like this. Being promised something tomorrow, but living as if you have it today. The life of faith is like this. Being promised something tomorrow, but living today like you have it now. It's confidently living in promises. Or to put another way, it's like getting promised a bonus from your employer, but writing checks today. Some of you are like, I live in faith all the time. It's called a credit card. <laughs> to which I would say there's a whole other sermon for that. Some of you guys got strong faith. Living in faith is being promised something tomorrow, but living as if you have it today. If you live like what is coming later is yours now, then you are living in the kind of faith that is being written of here in Hebrews 11. A faith that is sure. A faith that is confident and expectant, knowing that what is hoped for in the present is guaranteed to you in the future. And when you are filled with faith like this, it affects the way you live, which we'll see a few examples of in a minute. First, the author points out this, and then he points out that faith, in Hebrews 11, verse 2, how faith came, or how, I guess, the people of old received their commendation through faith. Hebrews 11, verse 2, for by it, speaking of faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, if you were ever asked the question, how do people commune with God before the law and the temple? How do people actually get in a right relationship with God before the temple sacrifices were instituted? The author is answering that question. He's saying they, that they did, the same, they did the same thing we did. The way the Old Testament saints had communion with God is through faith. Salvation through faith is not a new idea, nor was it only reserved for New Testament believers. Since the beginning of time, God's people had been saved by putting their faith in him. Now, granted, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't know the gospel as far as exactly how it would be all laid out. All they believed in faith was that God would have mercy on them and save them. And with that faith and future promise, they lived assured that God would in fact save them. He would in fact make a way for them to be with him. Now, if you're still a little fuzzy on what faith is, don't worry. The author of Hebrews has your back because now he's going to give us five examples, like five living, breathing examples, and we read about those in chapter 11. We'll get to that in a moment. But before we get there, he wants to start off with an easy example of how we exercise our faith. Hebrews 11, verse 3. He says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What an easy one, right? By faith we just understand that God created the universe out of nothing. That's the given he's saying. This example of faith helps us understand the second definition of faith given back in verse 1. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. It's the belief of things not seen. Now, this whole idea of using the creation account as like the easy example for us is like getting in a car and going from zero to 60. 
I mean, that is one of the most complicated things to even believe in the Bible, is that God created the universe out of nothing. That's hard to wrap your mind around of. But the people, the audience, the reader audience in this letter, for them, God creating the universe out of nothing was practically an undisputed act or fact. So the author uses this example to help the reader see that operating in faith is not an, as alien as they might think. He's essentially pointing out that no one witnessed God create the universe out of nothing. Yet, we understand it to be true. It is spoken of as a certainty, yet this certainty is a conviction that's led by faith. It's not by sight. The author is showing us that faith is full confidence in what can't be fully proven or seen. Faith is full confidence in what can't be fully proven or seen. The author then moves us forward in the timeline of history, and he begins to explain how the saints of old were commended for their faith and not because of their works. This is Hebrews 11, verses 4 through 12. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark, for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Here we're, we read about these great men and women of the faith. We read about Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, the author gives a quick shout out to Isaac and Jacob, and then he concludes with Sarah. And in each one of these little bios, we see two things. We see one, what they did. The author points that out. And number two, we see why they did it. Now, it would be easy to look at these giants of faith and, and think God commended them because of their obedience. That's what we're seeing in the text as far as their actions. They are obedient people. They are operating in faith, doing what God has asked them to do. They all obeyed, so they must be why God commended them. This is how the Hebrew people understand these stories, is that these people of old were commended by God because of what they did, not necessarily because of their faith. But that's not what we're reading here in this letter. Now, if we add the two words to each sentence, by faith, which is what the author does, it changes the way we look at all of this, right? By faith, Abel offered a right sacrifice. By faith, Enoch pleased God. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham left his home because God asked him to. By faith, Sarah tried for a son, even though she was beyond childbearing years. By adding the two words faith, the, by faith in front of each statement, the author is drawing the reader's attention 
to not the individual's achievements, and, but draws them towards their faith. And by virtue, draws them towards the object of their faith, which begs the question, what was promised to them in the future that empowered them to live the way they did in the present? And the answer we get is God's promises. They acted in faith, confidently assured that they would receive God's promises. Each one of these individuals believed that God would keep his promise towards them. What are these promises? We're going to get to that in a minute. But what we read here is that faith in God's future promises led these men and women to live as if they had already received them. And that's what faith is. It's visible confidence and invisible promises made by the ultimate promise keeper. They were not living their life wondering if God would keep his promises. They were living their life in a way that prepared them to receive God's promises when they came because it, to them it wasn't a question of if. It was just a question of when. Now this is how faith is made visible. Living in faith is the revelation of faith. The Apostle James has some pretty famous teaching on how faith in an invisible God is made visible through obedience. He says in James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Now don't get confused here. James' point here is that faith is visible in the way we live. And the author of Hebrews is using the lives of the saints of old to further support this point. Now what strikes me about these men and women of old in this text here is their lack of revelation. They didn't know about Jesus, as I pointed out before. They didn't know how God was going to forgive them, how God was going to save them. They didn't have a Bible to read. They didn't know about the world around them. There were so many unknowns for these believers, yet their actions proclaimed the faith and trust they had in God. Not without failures, but look at how confident they were in the Lord. And then there's us. God's people, a few thousand years removed, with the knowledge of God's love, demonstrated in the person of Christ who lived and died for us that we might receive salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. We've received so many promises that we read about in God's word, the promise of God's residence in us in Ezekiel 36, 27. We are told by God himself that nothing can separate us from his love in Romans 8, 38. We're told that our days are decreed by the Lord and that we will not exit this world until he says so, Psalm 139, 16. And we're told that whatever happens to us is for his glory and the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. We who have been promised life everlasting. And the question for us this morning would be, how loud is our faith? How visible is our faith? Is our invisible faith made evident in the way we live? How is our faith evident in the decisions we make? in the way we live, in the risks that we take, in the life that we strive for, in the things that we desire, do we live like what God has promised us in the future is ours now? These are good questions to ask ourselves this morning. But before you get discouraged, remember this. If and when 
we are faithless, God is faithful still. By faith, hold fast to that promise this morning. Now I'll move into the second section of our text, which is titled The End of Faith. Hebrews eleven thirteen says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now you may read this and think, what a drag, right? We like read this list of what these men and women accomplished, their obedience, their faith to the Lord, and then we read they died in faith, not receiving the things promised. These saints lived these lives of faith, confidently trusting that they would experience the promise of God, but never got there in this life. Now, sure, they did experience some. If you know the story of these saints, you know that Sarah was given a child, that Abraham set foot in the promised land, although it wasn't technically at that point their land. Noah was saved through the ark. Enoch didn't even taste death, went to be home with the Lord. They experienced some of these promises, but the text tells us they died not having received the promises, plural. What are these things promised? What did they not receive? The text kind of leaves us open in that. It could be the promised land. Although Abraham set foot in it, he did not actually be able to dwell in it as his own land. The author of Hebrews does bring this promise up in chapter 6, Hebrews 6, 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained that promise. That can't be it then. It can't be the promised land. We read that he patiently obtained that promise eventually. So what are the promises not received? We don't get an explicit answer here. Hebrews eleven thirteen though, I think gives us some helpful evidences to what these things are. Let's read on. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Here we get some reasons for why they didn't receive the things promised in their life, but were able to greet them from afar. The first reason is that they just didn't belong there. Christians, as Christians, we don't belong here. This is not our home. We read that these believers actually acknowledged that. They acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth, just pilgrims passing through. That's our first evidence of why they didn't receive the promises. To further the point of this peculiar life of faith, the author shares that these foreigners don't just look different, but they talk different. Hebrews eleven fourteen. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. This is in reference to the way Christians speak about their homeland. Now, if you guys have heard me preach before, I always am quoting Pilgrim's Progress. It's one of my favorite books. Again, read it if you haven't read, read it, okay? It is amazing. But in Pilgrim's Progress, there is a scene in the book. And it's the scene between Christian talking to this girl named Prudence. And she asks him a question because he's heading towards heaven. He's on his pilgrimage. It's all an allegory of him living the Christian life on his way to the celestial gates. And she asks the question, what is it that makes you desire to go to Mount Zion? 
And here's his reply. He says this, Why it is there that I hope to see alive my Savior who hung dead on the cross. It is there that I hope to be rid of all those things that to this day are an annoyance to me. They say that in the place there is no death, and I will dwell there with the company that I like best. For to tell you the truth, I love him because he eased me of my burden. I am weary of my inward sickness. I desire to be where I will die no more with a company that will continually cry, holy, holy, holy. That's pilgrim talk. That is the way someone talks when they are longing for the heavenly city. You know what people think about people who talk this way? They think he or she does not belong here. They belong somewhere else, and we do. Now, to further alienate these strangers or these believers, the author points out that not only do they not belong here, but also they don't desire what's offered here. So they have no interest in what's offered here. Hebrews 11, verses 15 through 16. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. They weren't interested in creature comforts, comfy living, wealth, health, happy days apart from God. They weren't interested in what the world promised them because they knew what the world promised them would not satisfy them like God or their king satisfies them. The temporary appeal of the world was not desired. God's people were not thinking about the land in which they had gone out of. No, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. As the author describes in verse 10, a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. In verse 11, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 16, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is how pilgrims live. This is how Christians live. Christians that are not a part of this world, who are longing for the heavenly city, who speak differently, who desire the Lord. Now, in conclusion, I mentioned earlier that this passage has really ministered to me by reminding me of God's promises throughout challenging situations, both God's promises now in life and God's future promises to us in death. Hebrews 11 reminds us today of the reality of the Christian life and how we experience some of the promises now, but how we'll experience most of the promises later. Some of the promises now, by God's grace, which are amazing, but most of the promises are coming later. Isn't that what the Christian life is marked by? It's faith. Because we have faith that God's promise will be received fully someday. We, like the saints of old, hold on to God's promises by faith. We haven't received all of them. We're looking forward to them by faith. We live our lives according to God's promise by faith, we trust that Christ has saved us by grace through faith. And by definition, faith is confidence in what is hoped for, confidence in what we'll, we will receive. And we haven't fully experienced God's promises yet. Think about this. Here in this life, the promise that God has made us, we are saved from sin, yet we still sin, right? Christ died for us, yet we still physically die unless Christ comes for us. We are sanctified, yet we still transgress. We haven't seen our king of glory 
We haven't seen him with unveiled faces as Justin was praying this morning. We haven't experienced our Lord like we will. This is all just a shadow. So we greet these promises from afar. Sure, we get glimpses of these promises now, but just enough to further our resolve to live by faith. But most likely we will all die not having received the promises like those we read of because we're just passing through. We're pilgrims, we're exiles, we're aliens. This is why Hebrews 11 is a comfort to me when I think about Rick, when I think about Justin's uncle Alan who passed away this morning, when I think about Sarah Mount, when I'm, looking, when I'm thinking about all those who have suffered and struggled through life, I think about how we're experiencing just some of the promises now, but the promises that lay before us are so glorious. They're so beautiful. Right now we see in a mirror dimly, but soon and then we will see God face to face. And I take comfort knowing that my friends and loved ones who have gone before us in Christ are with the Lord right now. And they're experiencing these wonderful, beautiful promises that we, by faith, hold on to and look forward to. That's why we can say yes and amen with Paul when he said, we do not mourn like those who have no hope because we have hope. It's anchored in our faith and our faith is steadfast with Christ. Let me end with reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, and then we'll pray. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray.